You're on. Welcome to the Dipshit Files, episode 91. Hello, Mrs. Scriptkeeper. Well, hello. I'm the Mr. Scriptkeeper guy, right. and we're doing week two of JFK. Yes, we are. And mm-hmm. we're doing the evidence this week. Yeah. And it's a pile. It is. <laughs> As you warned from last week. It is a pile. It, well, we had to do it in two parts. Yep. Today's episode might go a little longer than last week's episode. But you were thorough. Yeah. Well, you know, this is actually, just as a reminder, this is one of the most interesting conspiracy uh, ideas mm-hmm. uh, that I, I don't know, I find it fascinating. It is fact- and the awesome. information that has been produced and put out there, uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting. So... This goes, it falls into our conspiracy theory file. I guess so. Um, and, and this one here is uh, fascinating, quite compelling. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, if you, uh, if you haven't listened to last week's episode yet on the evidence, I'm sorry, on the motive, motive yeah. go ahead and do that first, because that is going to be the supporting audio documentation to today's episode. And yes. if you haven't listened to that one yet, stop right now. Go do that. Go do that. And then come back here and uh, I'll explain the evidence. Maybe they don't give a shit about the motive. They're just here for the evidence. <laughs> if that's the case, then, then you know what's up. Yeah, well, you know. I don't know. Maybe you won't know what's up. That's the problem, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a big file on the, mm-hmm. on the desk. Let's fucking open it up and look at it. Sounds like a plan. Before we get into the show, cards, cards, cards. Mm-hmm. We've got a set from the Dipshit Files coming out next Tuesday. It is going at noon. Mm-hmm. Specific time. Specific time. <laughs> and it is also part of the official set, but it is the 2024 Cryptid Collection presented by the Dipshit Files. Nice. For cards. And they are all foil. They all look kind of crazy. There's a bunch of different cryptids in here. This is the first volume of these. There'll be more mm-hmm. in the future, I'm sure. But check these out if you want them. They'll mm-hmm. be on sale. Uh, Tuesday at noon. Mm-hmm. All right, now let's get to the show. Okay. Now the Dipshit Files presents the assassination of JFK, the evidence act. All right, so today on to the conspiracy evidence for JFK. Right. Very fascinating stuff. So I'm assuming that you guys have all left last week's episode about the motive mm. and where we ended up and uh, all of that information there. So I'm just going to go ahead and get started. We did leave off with uh, Oswald's Lee Harvey Oswald's roommate and a statement that he made about Lee Harvey Oswald not being a pro-communist. Right. So he even stated that he, he was blown away when he heard that he was pro-communist because he was actually quote-unquote anti-communist was what you know, the words that he had used. At least around the house. Right. Well, and he was, he right here, here's a quote from him. I was sure that Oswald was on an intelligence operation in Russia, end quote. He said, when Oswald returned and was welcomed back with open arms, not even being questioned by the U.S. police or intelligence, he knew that Oswald was definitely working for intelligence. Yeah. Additionally, considering Oswald defected to the USSR and told the guys at the embassy on record that he had information to give the Soviets, you know, how is it that he could move around without constant surveillance? You Mm -hmm. know, it's because he was working in intelligence. 
that's what his roommate had suspected. Right. And that's where we left off. Okay. All right, strap up, dear friends. This gets fucking heavy. Now, it's believed a man named George D. Morinschild was Oswald's CIA handler. In 1977, he gave an interview saying that this was true. He explained that a CIA agent named J. Walton Moore put him in touch with Oswald. Morinschild said, quote, I would never have contacted Oswald in a million years if Moore hadn't sanctioned it, end quote. The New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, depicted in the movie GFK by Kevin Costner, back and to the left, called Morinschild a CIA quote-unquote babysitter. Back and to the left. Garrison said some of Morinschild's family told him Oswald had been made a scapegoat for JFK's assassination. Morinschild's wife and daughter said on record that he was the one who got Oswald a job in Dallas at a graphics art company. This firm, Jaggers, Schills, Stovall, was, according to the Warren Commission, just a regular, quote, commercial advertising outfit. And they left out the fact the company made highly classified maps for the U.S. Army. Oh, shit. Possibly maps of Cuba and the Soviet Union, hmm. which Oswald would have helped with. Intriguing stuff, right? Yeah. Well, three hours after Morinschild opened his mouth about his relationship with Oswald, dead. He was found dead. No way. In a house in Florida. Oh my God. This happened just minutes after Grayton Fonzie, an investigator with the House Select Committee on Assassinations, had come knocking at his door and left a card. Very interesting, yeah. right? Huh. The writer, Dame James Douglas, whose investigations we've used a lot today for this episode, believes Morinschild was just a pawn in the game. Garrison understood only too well that people who talked tended to, to suddenly die, which is why he hid one female witness we'll discuss here in a bit. Okay. We'll also talk about a bunch of very mysterious deaths. The man running the CIA's counterintelligence programs from 1954 to 1967 was James Jesus Angleton. This Yale graduate was a resolute anti-communist and was the head of the CIA's assassination program, which he ran with Army Colonel Boris Pash. The latter is more famous for investigating Robert Oppenheimer for alleged spying activities for the Soviets regarding the atomic bomb. Mm. Pash also led the Alsace mission when the Americans tried to grab Nazi scientists who'd worked on the atomic bomb and chemical weapons. After that, he took charge of the CIA's so-called wet affairs, which were assassination and kidnapping programs. Hmm. When the Church Committee and the House Select Committee on Assassinations, HSCA, looked into such men, they found that Angleton's special investigation group had a file on Lee Harvey Oswald. It was called a 201 file. The CIA had this on Oswald for three years before JFK was killed. Hmm. The Warren Commission had not found this, and if it had, things might have turned out very differently. 201 files were for CIA operatives that needed to be watched closely as they'd become suspicious. Mm. But what's also interesting here is that documents were unearthed that showed the CIA had been creating phony 201 files for the ZR slash rifle project, mm. which was related to the assassinations of political leaders. The reason that some of these files were forged 
it's alleged, so that the CIA could one day use that person as a scapegoat. They could say, look, we already knew this agent was up to no good, and then place all the blame on him. I know I've said this since the beginning of Mm SCATCAST, and I did say this a lot before I ever was on Mm SCATCAST. Children run the fucking world. Right. And that's what children running the world, taking themselves really serious looks like. That's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Right. I think to me, to some <laughs> jackass who's also a child running around the world, who's not I'm, taking himself that I'm just, a, I'm just a kid, you know, I'm, I'm a child too. Yeah. And just gathering information and being like, whoa, wait, did that just happen? That's like, if the, you can What's picture, going on? you can picture these kids if you just drop them down in years down to when they're 10, yeah, I was eight, gonna nine, say, 10. And yep. it's like, they be, that's how they did, yeah. but now they have <laughs> nuclear weapons and they've got secret double agent spies. Our governments are so important oh, yeah. and we're special in our ideas. Yay. Right. Well, the HSCA interviewed a woman named Anne Egerter. She worked for Angleton and had seen Oswald's 201 file. It was her testimony that showed us that Oswald was actually a CIA asset, but one who was under investigation by the CIA, or maybe being set up to become a scapegoat. Right. Maybe. That's the interpretation that people have of the 201. Right, right? exactly. Well, could be, the allegedly, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we should say that she was indirect with her answers when interviewed, okay? But researchers now say her testimony, quote, implies strongly that either Oswald was indeed a member of the CIA or was being used in an operation involving members of the CIA, end quote. Okay? Mm. So the former CIA finance officer, Jim Walcott, also backed up the fact that Oswald was a CIA asset. He's like, I, I parked next to him in the CIA agency in Langley. <laughs> Just hang out there well, and do shit. Wilcott became a whistleblower who said he left the CIA when he realized the work they were doing had nothing even remotely to do with humanism. His word. His wife, who was also CIA, left as well. They both testified that by leaving, they'd be able to, quote unquote, sleep better at night. Jim testified that another reason was that while working at the Tokyo station, other loose lip CIA agents told him that the CIA killed JFK. Hmm. They actually just came out and said it. Hmm. Jim testified, quote, I thought these guys were nuts, but then a man I knew I had worked with before showed up to take a disbursement and told me Lee Harvey Oswald was a CIA employee. I didn't believe him until he told me the cryptonym under which Oswald had drawn funds, end quote. Jim then realized that he himself had advanced funds to the same cryptonym, <laughs> which in his eyes Red made flag. made him partly involved in his favorite president's assassination. Oh, man. In 1978, after Jim had left what he saw as a disgraceful agency, he told the San Francisco Chronicle, quote, It was common knowledge in the Tokyo CIA station that Oswald worked for the agency, end quote. It was also widely known that he'd been employed to become a double agent, spying on Russia. Jim explained, quote, Oswald was recruited from the military for the express purpose of becoming a double agent assigned to the USSR. More than once, I was told something like, so-and-so was working on the Oswald project back in the late 50s. End quote. He added, one of the reasons given for the necessity to do away with Oswald was the difficulty they had with him when he returned. Apparently, he knew the Russians were onto him from the start. 
and this made him very angry. I feel like you come from the United States, you speak pretty good Russian, <laughs> and they're, they're like, what are we doing here, buddy? You got that haircut? I don't know. What do you mean you want to see the codes? Get the fuck out of here. Lee Harvey Oswald. Right. Well, after this kind of talk... Get both, the fuck out, bitch. <laughs> both the Walcotts had their lives made very difficult. Uh, I'm sure that's that's an understatement, which, yeah. as you'll soon see, happened to many people. They were followed everywhere they went. They struggled to find work. Their car tires were slashed. They regularly received threatening phone calls. Now, these are things that happened after they spoke up. This stuff uh, allegedly didn't happen prior to them speaking up. After they spoke up, this was a constant in their life. Does it mean it was... Uh, that they were, you know, retaliated against, maybe. Uh, is it just random stuff? Maybe. It's not off the table. Right. That children who run the world that can't, that are at the helm of government, which by its very definition can't really be wrong to the people, right. would want to make it so that people that right. are like, that's wrong, are right. not saying but, that. But, you know, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. It could be a goose. It <clears throat> could be, could be. All right. Um, so now we should talk about Richard Case Nagel, a CIA double agent who was arrested on September 20th, 1963, after walking into the State National Bank in El Paso, Texas, and firing two shots into the ceiling. He said he'd purposefully got himself arrested because, quote, I'd rather be arrested than commit murder and treason, end quote. Shit. Yes. So Nagel had worked for Field Operations Intelligence which was tasked with covering up the, quote, true nature of CIA objectives, end quote. Now, as a double agent, he also worked for the KGB. And one of his tasks was surveilling Lee Harvey Oswald. Nagel admitted all of this later on at a time when fewer people believed Oswald had acted alone in killing JFK or even acted at all, really. So Nagel also said the KGB knew about the JFK assassination plot before it happened. He said, quote, if anyone wanted to stop the assassination, it was the KGB, end quote. Hmm. JFK was a much better leader for the Soviets than anyone who might replace him. The KGB told Nagel to either kill Oswald or at least try and convince him that he was being set up to become a patsy. Now, he told him this when he met Oswald in New Orleans. Nagel also sent FBI boss J. Edgar Hoover a registered letter saying he'd been ordered to kill Oswald and that there was a plan to assassinate JFK. Nagel believed that he would somehow be implicated in this assassination, so he got himself arrested. He's going into the office, and they're yep. like looking at him funny. He's like, oh, I don't like this. Yep. And somebody stole my sandwich from the fridge in the right? break room. I'm not liking this. <laughs> they have thrown me under the bus. So he walked in and fired two shots in the air to get himself arrested. Jim Garrison interviewed him and later said he was, quote, the most important witness there is, end quote. Mm-hmm. Nagel said after talking to Garrison, he survived three attempts on his life. And then agreed to stay quiet for a nice pension. But... Who told him to do that? Well, I don't know. But what about his letter to Hoover? He said he wrote it in a way, uh, quote, to persuade the reader that its sender was familiar with CIA procedure, that it was not a crank letter, end quote. He used the alias Joseph Kramer, the pseudonym for a Soviet agent known to the U.S. Surely... 
that would mean the FBI knew what was going to happen to JFK, right? Mm -hmm. The FBI has always denied it even received such a letter. Since there is no letter, Nagel has been portrayed uh, as a crazy guy. But then, in 1995, the Assassination Records Review Board, ARRB, got in touch with Nagel, saying they would take him seriously as long as he told them everything and handed over every document he had that could show he was telling the truth. Sounds like a plan. Right. Well, they mailed him this letter stating this on November 1st, 1995, which uh, actually was the day he was found dead in his bathroom in his house in L.A. Now, it was... Simulation over. Do not (laughs) fuck with the program. (laughs) So it was said to be a heart attack, uh, in spite of him being in perfectly good health and having zero heart issues. Oh, and by the way, I should add that under uh, MKUltra, the CIA worked on methods to cause people to have random heart attacks. Yeah, there was like a a fish toxin in this weird gun that they had that was all the rage. All the rage for the agency then. Right. So his son, by the way, Richard, uh, was left the key to a storage unit in Tucson, Arizona, where his dad had told him he kept all of his documents in a purple trunk, consisting of everything about his time in the CIA. Well, when Richard arrived, he found all of his father's things, minus the purple trunk. It was gone. Now, it was also strange that the day Richard went to Arizona, his house was just randomly broken into and completely ransacked. The odds are ridiculous. Weird. For that to, yeah. Really weird. Yeah. So we should also mention Thomas Arthur Vallee, the, uh, the man believed to have been the CIA's first patsy, who was to be blamed for the assassination of JFK on November 2nd in Chicago, rather than November 22nd in Dallas. Mm. Okay, so this was only made public knowledge uh, 40 years after JFK was assassinated. Right. Information about Vallee, the fact that he looked like Oswald and had a background similar to Oswald's, was never made available to federal agents in Dallas at the time of JFK's visit. The assassination in Chicago failed, but Vallee was still arrested. The file on Vallee said he was a far-right-wing lunatic, obsessed with guns, a loner, and extremely paranoid. This fit perfectly with what the CIA liked to call lone actors when they needed to blame a crime on someone. The Secret Service had learned about the Chicago assassination plot, so they raced off to Veli's house where they found an M1 rifle and 500 rounds of ammunition. They told the Chicago police to watch this man 24 hours a day. A day later, policemen Daniel Groth and Peter Sherla pulled Veli's car over and found a hunting knife in the back. In the trunk, there were 300 rounds of ammunition. When investigators later interviewed Vali, he told them he'd worked in Japan on the secret U2 program. They found his car's license plate had been frozen. Journalists were told the plate information was classified. As for those two detectives, they went on to have, well, astounding careers in police intelligence. Really interesting, huh? Mm -hmm. So the academic Daniel Stern investigated Groth's police career and said he'd never had anything close to a normal career. He went missing for long periods. He and other researchers said Groth actually worked for counterintelligence, Mm -hmm. allegedly, okay? Mm -hmm. Had they been part of a plot to make Valley a patsy, a place there just in case the assassination was successful? 
Valet's sister, Mary, believes her brother was set up as a potential assassin. She said Thomas was never the lone nut that he'd been portrayed as, although he did have a history of some mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And this is why he was honorably discharged from the Marines in September of 1956. Additionally, Valley later told the journalist Edwin Black that he'd worked for the CIA at a training camp in Long Island, training Cuban exiles in the art of assassination. Yay, taxpayers' <laughs> dollars. Just like Oswald, he'd somehow managed to find a job where the Chicago assassination attempt would happen, where JFK's motorcade would pass. Very interesting. Hmm. It was as if his life was the double of Oswald's. Later, investigations showed Veli also had access to a window at his new workplace that had the perfect view of the motorcade that was to pass through Chicago. Secret Service heard that two snipers with high-powered rifles were believed to be waiting for the president to pass through. The Secret Service, now knowing about the threat, arrested three men as possible snipers, and another two men were being held. These men were in custody just as the Chicago police arrested Valley. The possible snipers arrested that day also didn't become known to the public for decades. Abraham Bolden, the first black person ever to guard the president, was there in Chicago. He later said he couldn't understand why some of the JFK security was so lax. Mm -hmm. He said some of the men were drunk half the time. Bolden started drawing lines between what happened in Chicago and what happened in Dallas. On May 17, 1964, he tried to call the Warren Commission about this, but didn't get through. On May 18th, he was arrested and accused of trying to sell Secret Service files. He was disgraced, even though there was hardly any proof. At his home in Chicago, as he sat in prison, his garage was burned down. A single shot was fired through a window, scaring his wife and kids. When he spoke with Jim Garrison, he was subsequently put in solitary confinement. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So in 1995, when AARB got the case, the Secret Service destroyed all the records of the Chicago plot after AARB investigators asked uh, for, they wanted access to them. So they, I can do one better for you. Didn't happen. What? (laughs) They don't even exist. What are you talking about? The AARB is an advisory board appointed by the governor to review the design or modifications of the state-owned buildings, property, and works of art. So this theory goes that Oswald was framed, but to frame him, he needed to be seen doing a lot of sketchy things prior to the investigation, more than just going to Russia or seeming like he was pro-Cuba. This is where his double comes in. Yes, his double. (laughs) Stick with me here. You mentioned that they looked alike. Right. Right. Prior to the assassination, there were many sightings of a man who looked like Oswald. He was seen at a firing range on a few occasions. The theory says that the CIA was trying to make this man look guilty by sending a body double to the local firing range. One of the witnesses in the Warren Commission, Malcolm Price, said someone who looked like Oswald asked for help with his scope at a Dallas firing range. (laughs) He's there in the range. He's like, hey, Lee Harvey Oswald here. This is Lee Harvey Oswald's gun. (laughs) Lee Harvey Oswald could use some help with his scope. Well, the witness... Got it, Lee. The witness, Garland Slack, said he was at another firing range, and this Oswald character drew attention to himself by, quote, burning up his ammunition on Slack's own target, end quote. What? 
Right. So he must have aimed. It sounds to me that instead of using his target, he turned to this other guy's target and just beat the shit out of the target. Weird. That's like a weird kind of like I'm pissing on your shoe. Weird flex, right? Slack said when he complained, the man gave him a look he would never forget. (laughs) Those direct quote. The problem was when the Warren Commission was told about these events, Oswald was supposed to be in Mexico City visiting the Russian and Cuban embassies. There were too many Oswalds at this point. Imagine real quick, they're they're doing the recruiting session. Mm-hmm. They're watching these soldiers run, and they're like, these guys are probably going to be pretty good double agents. But hey, look at those two cunts. They look like twins. I've got an evil plan. <laughs> Put them in a special file. Well, the conspiracy theorists say they weren't just setting up Oswald. They but- were also making clones of him. <laughs> Obviously. Well, they weren't just setting him up. They were indicting the whole of the Soviet Union in a Cold War they needed the American public to support. Right. Okay. Four days before JFK was shot and killed, the Soviet embassy in Washington received a letter by Oswald, or at least signed by Oswald. Mm. J. Edgar Hoover's FBI read the letter before it even got there. Mm. In the letter, Oswald admitted to a meeting with Valery Kostikov, the KGB's undercover assassination specialist. So the man who apparently killed JFK Four days prior to killing him, sent a letter talking about hanging out with a Soviet assassin. Wow. Now, this was a perfect setup. But here's where the conspiracy theorists ask, how do we know Oswald wrote the letter? Hmm. So the Russian ambassador wrote, quote, this letter was clearly a provocation. It gives me the impression we had close ties to Oswald, end quote. He said the U.S. must have been aware of this letter. He added that whoever wrote it was no doubt behind the assassination. When Lyndon Johnson became president after JFK, he actually decided not to scapegoat the Soviet Union, but he didn't question the fact that Oswald was guilty. The Warren Commission would later make out that Oswald's plan was to escape by plane to Cuba after he knocked off the president. Now, this obviously didn't happen since Oswald was arrested and later shot dead by someone we will discuss later, Jack Ruby. Maybe not the man he thought he was, by the way. We thought he was, by the way. Right. There's a bunch of shit there as well. Yes. So Oswald didn't fly away, but it had to look like he had planned to do that. The Patsy needed a fake getaway. So on November 20th, 1963, a car drove into Redbird Airfield just outside of Dallas. It parked close to the American Aviation Company, which was a private airline. One man stayed in the car, and a woman and a guy entered the office. They said they wanted a Cessna 310 for November 22nd and wanted to fly to the Yucatan in Mexico, not far from Cuba. Now, Wayne January, who was the owner, became suspicious when they asked lots of strange questions, like how far the plane would go, at what speed, and where else they could fly besides Mexico. Now, these were just really <laughs> weird questions. Do you know where Fidel Castro lives? <laughs> right? These are just weird questions. It kind of like um, a kid or a criminal would ask, really. Right. It was very strange. Mm-hmm. January also said he looked in the car at the guy that didn't come in. And not surprisingly, he said it was Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, he said that after the assassination, of course. Mm. Now, Redbird Airfield was just five miles from where Oswald lived. 
1991, through a Freedom of Information request, a British man named Matthew Smith got hold of the FBI's report on the Redbird Airfield incident. Smith then flew to the U.S. to find Wayne January and told him that the FBI, what the FBI had said about the incident. January was shocked. Hmm. The FBI had written that the incident occurred in July, not November, two days before the assassination. Hmm. It also said January had been unsure about it being Oswald in the car when he told them that it was him for sure. He's like, oh, it's Lee Harvey Oswald. This is Lee Harvey Oswald's pants. If you'd like to look into my wallet. <laughs> well, his exact, his exact words uh, were, I gave them a 9 out of 10 chance. So hmm. the reason for the lies, say the conspiracy theorists, is that in January's testimony, he said he thought those two people were thinking about hijacking a plane to Cuba. That's what he thought. That's what it sounded like. Right. So after President Johnson decided not to implicate Cuba or the Soviet Union in JFK's death, they now didn't need the Redbird airfield incident. <laughs> so it had been played down. It's easier to manufacture the history if, you know, you've got a bunch of dumb cunts that are willing to do it. Just half a day after the Redbird airfield incident, a police lieutenant in Louisiana named Francis Frug was called to a hospital in Eunice, Louisiana. There, he met a woman who was in withdrawal from opiates. Her name was Rose Charmaine. She said she'd been driving with two men who later threw her out of the silver slipper bar they were drinking at, and she was hit by a car. Frug took her to the hospital, took her to another hospital where she could have her withdrawal in more comfort. And on the two-hour journey, Charmaine told him that the two guys she'd been driving with had told her that they were going to go kill the president when they arrived in Dallas. She said they were either Cubans or Italians. He didn't, of course, think much of it since she was in a bit of a state by that time. But when two days later JFK was shot... Frug called the hospital and told them not to let Charmaine out of there. Hmm. He couldn't believe it. Had had she really known? I mean, he was blown away. Right. After JFK was killed, they contacted the FBI about what she told them, and they were told they already had their man. They didn't want to know about Charmaine's story at all, I guess. Hmm. So in a strange twist of fate, it also came to light that Charmaine had once worked for the nightclub owner, Jack Ruby. Oh, boy. She also told Frug that through Ruby, she had met Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, boy. She explained that Ruby and Oswald were actually quite close. They were in a band together in high school. <laughs> Lee Harvey and the I Love Communisms. Jeez. <laughs> oh, well, evidently, she never got to testify about this in the subsequent JFK investigations, which is kind of weird. Mm. On September 4th, 1965, she was found dead in the middle of a road in Big Sandy, Texas. And I'm sure they're like, well, lots of people die that are connected to this case well, directly. Well, the, the driver of the car that hit her said that he had swerved to miss some suitcases piled in the middle of the road. Only when he swerved, he went over a body. Now, it was never explained why a woman at three in the morning was lying in the middle of the road next to a pile of suitcases. It's just nature. That's how nature is. Right. You know, it just happens, I guess. Yeah. Dr. Charles Crenshaw, who later wrote a book about JFK's assassination, said her autopsy showed the kind of head wound that is usually associated with a gunshot wound. Oh, boy. She might not have even been hit by the car. Well, really? Prior diet. It's probably <laughs> low fiber or something. Jim Garrison wanted to exhume her body, but the state of Texas refused his 
his request. So, like, she's just not paying attention to the food pyramid. That's all. <laughs> it's just nature. Well, when Mac Manuel, the owner of the Silver Slipper, was later interviewed, he identified the two men she was with as Sergio Smith and Emilio Santana, two Cuban exiles. Santana told Jim Garrison that he had worked for the CIA in 1962 when he first got to Miami. He was involved in moving weapons on the sea for guerrilla fighters in Cuba. The CIA admitted to using him, but said they terminated his contract in 1963. Charmaine's story might sound unbelievable, but it's just a little bit strange. She talked about knowing JFK was going to be killed at a time she was seen with Cuban CIA operatives. Yeah, whoops. Kind of interesting. Let's talk to her at least. <clears throat> right. Wonder what happened to her. So the conspiracy theorists say that this is just one coincidence of hundreds of strange coincidences. Yeah. So as for the other man, Smith, he'd once been arrested in Venezuela on charges of plotting to kill President Ernesto Betancourt, the so-called father of Venezuelan democracy. Okay. Records show Smith was released from prison and the U.S. Embassy came to his aid. He went straight to New Orleans where he worked with a Cuban exile group. And it was there he befriended the detective intelligence agent Guy Bannister, who also knew Oswald. Small world, right? Mm -hmm. So They were in that band. It, <clears throat> they didn't, it was just a few years, but they did you know, right, a lot well, of touring on the East Coast. It's just kind of interesting. So I hope you're, I hope you're able to follow along, uh, dear listener. You can find the band webpage. <laughs> Bannister and Smith had offices in the same building, the Balter building. The witness to the assassination, David Lewis, who worked for Bannister, later testified that Oswald and Smith also knew each other. Okay, so let's move on a little bit. 23-year-old Julia Ann Mercer said on the day JFK was murdered, she saw a green truck parked close to Dealey Plaza where the president would be killed just an hour and a half later. A man got out of the truck. Um, He's like, I'm Lee Harvey Oswald, everybody. <laughs> Just so you know, I'm about to kill a guy that you all like. I'm going to kill him. Right. Well, he got out of the truck and he pulled out what she described as a rifle case. Here's my rifle. It's called right. Lee Harvey Oswald's rifle case. Inside it is Lee Harvey Oswald's gun. I'm Lee Harvey Oswald. It's very interesting that this would be happening just an hour and a half in the plaza before a president's going to be there. Just this simply, yeah. right? Guy gets out of a truck with a rifle case. Very interesting. I feel like the Secret Service is very sophisticated, even in 1965, mm -hmm. and they And they just had an eye on the guy, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the man then walked over to an area that would later become known as the Grassy Knoll. She said... <laughs> just setting up a, a sniper rifle here, Lee Harvey Oswald sniper rifle. Right. right. Well, she said three police officers were standing nearby, and not one of them did anything about this man walking around with a rifle case. Hmm. She then pulled up next to the truck and looked at the driver. She got a clear look at him, but only recognized him two days later when she saw his face on TV. Lee Harvey Oswald clone. She was absolutely sure the guy driving the truck was Jack Ruby. Oh. She said this well before anyone ever asked her questions about a conspiracy. Wow. After seeing the guy with the rifle... She'd been overheard telling her friends about it at a restaurant. Police officers later stopped her and told her she'd been heard chatting about seeing a man with a rifle. Yeah, but what's more, the president had just been shot. She was then questioned for four hours at a Dallas police station. When Jim Garrison interviewed her later, 
he showed her and her husband the statements that she had made to the cops okay she looked at them and said she had never said anything like that her actual words to garrison were they have been altered they have me saying just the opposite of what i really told them yikes that's yes not a good feeling i bet she said she'd been given photos to look at by the police who of who might have been driving the green truck she picked up one of them and said it was him for sure he's the drummer in that band she turned it over and on it was written jack ruby Mm -hmm. they definitely showed me jack ruby and i definitely picked him out as looking like the driver she told garrison so she meant to say drummer just imagine if this had gotten out before ruby killed oswald Mm -hmm. okay this would have been massive but the police wrote that mercer had been unable to identify the truck driver Hmm. Yeah, that was in the report. She told Garrison that she and her family, the, the day she saw Ruby on TV, that that's the guy she'd seen driving the truck. That's before any of this happened. So then she notified the FBI that not only had she seen Ruby in the photo, but she'd seen him again on TV. But this wasn't in any FBI report anywhere. The only thing the official report said was that one of the photos she'd been shown was of Ruby but that she hadn't picked him out of directly out of any of them, mm. basically. Okay. Garrison told her the FBI report stated that she said the words air conditioning were written on the truck. Okay. But she told Garrison that she told the FBI that the truck had zero writing on it. I clearly said there was no plenty printing on the truck. Hmm. There was nothing on it. She told Garrison, but that didn't stop the agents from spending two days Looking for the air conditioning truck. Don't mind us, sweetheart. We're writing history. We're writing it. (laughs) She also told Garrison, neither of the signatures on these two pages of this affidavit are mine, although they are close imitations, end quote. Hmm. So, moving on. On the day of the assassination, Sheriff Bill Decker and Police Chief Jesse Curry were both nervous. They knew the president would be exposed, both of them had been told by the Secret Service to lighten security that day. Decker had told his men that they were to, quote, take no part in the security of the presidential motorcade, end quote. The House Select Committee on Assassinations later said both these men were just following orders from the Secret Service, orders that proved to be fatal to the president. The Secret Service said that JFK was the one who didn't want officers all around him, but subsequent interviews refute this. Air Force Colonel Fletcher Prouty, who'd protected President Eisenhower before, said all the windows of the buildings in the vicinity should really have been locked down with tape with the order, do not open. But that never happened. There was a vacuum of security for JFK. Yeah, Secret Service knows what the fuck they're doing. Right, right. Which is weird because they shoot everyone away. Very weird. Deputy Sheriff Robert Craig said just after the president was shot, he saw a man running down the hill toward another man driving a light green Rambler station wagon. He tried to stop them, but he couldn't get across the street, and the car took off. Craig then ran towards the Texas School Book Depository to tell the Secret Service what he saw. There, he met a man who said he was Secret Service, who Craig said didn't seem very interested in what he had to say. Later, Craig went to the police station and talked to Captain Will Fritz of the Homicide Division. By this time, Fritz said they had a man in connection with the killing. Craig asked to look at him to see if it was the same man he'd seen running towards the light green rambler. And it was the same man, 
But how could that be? Oswald said, quote, that station wagon belongs to Mrs. Payne. Don't try to drag her into this, end quote. Mrs. Payne, who Oswald and his wife had stayed with, owned a station wagon, but it was a Bel Air Chevrolet. This would all be refuted anyway when the Warren Commission would say Oswald walked out of the building and got on a bus. We're right in history here, damn Right, it. right. So everything changed. Now, so the witness, Helen Forrest, also said she saw a, a man running and enter a Green Rambler. James Pennington corroborated what she saw, while some witnesses said they saw a man in a hat and a tan or brown sport coat. Carolyn Walther said she saw a man in the school book depository leaning out the window holding a rifle. Marvin Robinson and Roy Cooper both saw a man running down the hill toward the Green Rambler. The Warren Commission rejected all of these reports of a Green Rambler. They couldn't use him. (laughs) Because when Oswald was seen getting into the Rambler, Officer Marion Baker and Roy Truly said they'd seen Oswald on the second floor of the Texas Book Depository at the same time. Where's Oswald, right? So I'm everywhere. Moving moving forward, we're gonna we're gonna come visit this again, but let's move forward. What about JFK's injuries? Okay. His wife, Jacqueline, said, and this this saddened my heart so much because I could not imagine being in her shoes. Mm. She said, quote, I was trying to hold his hair on, Mm. but from the front there was nothing. But from the back you could see, you know, you were trying to hold his hair on and his skull on. End quote. I'm sorry, that poor woman. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. The Warren Commission wiped these words from their investigation saying they were in poor taste. What these words might also have done was assist in proving that her husband was shot from the front. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to get into the magic bullet theory too much because it would make the story even longer. But It's pretty ridiculous. Just, even as a little kid, I was like, I don't understand. Right. That's not how bullets work. Just, just keep in mind that this very crucial fact was striked from the official report. So on the day after the shooting, William Allen Harper was taking photos near the grassy knoll. He actually found a large piece of skull fragment, which he then took to his uncle, Dr. Jack Harper. Okay, Jack passed it on to Dr. Cairns, the chief pathologist at the hospital where they worked. Sorry, okay. it's just like, hey, uncle, I know you like body parts. I found another random body part. Well, they knew it was going to be important. Yeah, I know. Okay? I know. So, I, sorry. Dr. Cairns was the chief pathologist at the hospital where uh, Dr. Jack, they worked together, okay? Both Cairns and another pathologist looked at the fragment and said that it was a piece of the skull belonging to the occiput, or the lower back of the human skull. Nine years later, a student at UCLA realized that the x-rays of JFK's skull couldn't have been the real thing if these pathologists had been right. Wow. The x-rays showed a different part of the skull was missing. Hmm. So the x-rays fit the official story, which said that there was only one gunman, but the skull those guys had looked at suggested there may have, there must have been more than one perpetrator, meaning JFK was also hit from the front. Mm-hmm. So I, I find this very interesting. There's so many coincidences here and so many oddities. It's not every day you find a piece of skull in the grass, fresh, you know what I mean? Right. It's, that's not every day. No. Additionally, after somebody was assassinated and shot in the head, it's natural to assume it belonged to him. Right. Okay. And if they could have done DNA stuff, they'd know. Exactly. Well, yeah. that was the back of the skull, not the front. Right. 
Dr. David Mantic, a radiation oncologist, later investigated the x-rays and determined that they were not authentic. They'd been forged, he said. Fucking bad. Right? So as for Oswald, he told police that when the president was shot, he was having lunch on the first floor. He then went up a floor to buy a Coke from a vending machine. A key witness, whose testimony was just basically ignored by the Warren Commission, saw Oswald there at 12.15, and her name was Carolyn Arnold. She said she knew Oswald, well, because he was always stopping by her desk and asking for change for the vending machine. Hmm. She said she knew the time when she saw Oswald, as it was lunchtime. She went into the canteen for some water and saw Oswald sitting there with his Coke. She said, quote, he was alone as usual and appeared to be having lunch, end quote. This was apparently 15 minutes before he must have raced up three flights of stairs, set his sights on the president, shot him, and escaped. Okay, 15 minutes. JFK was also supposed to pass there at 1225, so the shooter was apparently drinking a Coke and chilling in the cantina 10 minutes before getting ready for the shooting in a completely different part of the building. Is that how snipers do things? (laughs) I don't think so. I don't know. So about a minute and a half after the shooting, Dallas Patrolman M.L. Baker ran into the second floor canteen where he saw a very calm Oswald. Baker then asked the superintendent, do you know this man? The superintendent said, yes. Oswald then finished trying to get a Coke from the machine. Okay. One minute later, a clerical supervisor, Mrs. R.A. Reen, also saw Oswald on the second floor. And he had a can of cola in his hands. They all testified that they'd seen Oswald, that he was not out of breath, he was not disheveled, he looked totally calm, and yet the Warren Commission was trying to say he'd pulled off the crime of the century and moved through the building at lightning speed. They're saying, oh, you got it. you're sure it was a can of Coke and not a sniper rifle? <laughs> you're sure? Because <laughs> right. we're thinking it was a sniper rifle, might have looked like a can of Coke. Well, this is, this is kind of interesting. It was 15 years later that Carolyn Arnold found out that the FBI had changed her statement from seeing Oswald on the second floor to seeing him in the hallway off the first floor. Quote, this doesn't make any sense to me, end quote, she told a journalist. Her testimony of Oswald calmly eating lunch just didn't fit the narrative. Allegedly. Okay, this is what the conspiracy theorists are saying. There are many more witness statements as to what happened at the book depository and in the street, and many of them, nearly all, are contradictory, are contradictory or not very reliable. Okay. But this has been discussed time and time again, and yet no one can say with certainty what actually happened. Right. So we will move on to focus on broader aspects of this case. I just had to bring all of those little details in. That's just crazy, though. Okay. How many people have heard half of that or any of that? Well, you have to... This is later stuff. This came out 15, 20, 40 years later, you know? Yeah. So as you probably know, the Warren Commission said Oswald then killed Officer J.D. Trippett and later fled into a movie theater. Hmm. Okay, that's... This is only one story, though. There's another take on this tale, uh, say the conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. The Warren Commission says Trippett pulled Oswald over at 1.15. They exchanged words. Tippett walked out of the car, and Oswald walked around the car, and then Oswald shot him. Okay, that's the... That's what they say happened. Oswald hit him with four bullets, after which he took off on foot, 
reloading his gun on the way. The report says 12 people saw the shooter, and at least five made Oswald out in photographs at the station. Calvin Brewer, manager of a shoe store, also saw Oswald. He said he saw Oswald acting weird, and then he went into a movie theater. Julia Postal, who was in the ticket booth, saw the man sneak in, so she called the police. The time was 1.45 p.m. Even so, Warren Butch Burroughs, who ran the concession stand in the theater, claims to have seen Oswald at 1.05. Oh. He didn't see Oswald enter the theater, but saw him inside. Okay. Butch said he was 100% sure of that. He also said Oswald bought popcorn from him at 1.15 exactly when Tippett was shot. There, there were probably a lot of Lee Harvey Oswald clones running around. Well. So that was part of the, you know. Again, story. it was as if there were two Oswalds. All right. Okay. 18-year-old Jack Davis also saw Oswald at this earlier time. Davis said he was creeped out because there was a shit ton of space in the auditorium, but this guy sat really close to him. Hmm. He almost, as if he were trying to be seen, basically. Yeah. Later, Hi, in, Lee Harvey Oswald, right. watching a movie next to you. So What's your name? Lee's my name. The man actually then just got up and went over to sit somewhere else. <laughs> he follows then him. Then he proceeded to get up again and went to the lobby. So he, it was just weird. Davis said Oswald returned about 20 minutes later, although Butch, the concession guy, said the Oswald he saw instead went to sit next to a pregnant woman. Okay, this is very convoluted. He's networking at the movie. Butch then stated, after Oswald was arrested in the theater, after being wrestled to the ground, he was shocked. He said he saw another Oswald, like a twin brother. One Oswald was carted out of the front of the cinema, and Butch said he saw the other Oswald taken out the back. Bernard Hare, who owned a hobby shop, saw the commotion out in the street at the front, and then went into the back of his store, where there was an alley behind. Regarding what he saw at the back, he later said, quote, Police brought out a young man. They put him in a car and drove off. Now, that was fine at the time for Hare, but years later, he learned that Oswald was actually taken out the front, which he said he knew was wrong because he'd been there, and he saw that he was taken out the back. Both Hare and Butch's stories seem to suggest there were actually two Oswalds, as does the story of police officer L.D. Stringfellow, who said in a police report that Oswald was arrested on the balcony at the theater auditorium, but he wasn't. This was an official police report. He was arrested in the main bottom part. So who did Stringfellow see being arrested? Well, there is a lot of shit in court where people don't remember very well. Right. The things that happened. But that is some pretty professional people that are forgetting it's that. Kind of interesting. Yeah. I don't know. We're writing history here, people. We don't need your facts and your bullshit so that you saw. who was the Oswald that the motor mechanic T.F. White saw around 2 p.m.? Yeah, we'll never know. Huh? Who was wandering around a free man? The other was Oswald by now was in the police station. White saw a car that seemed suspicious, a red falcon. He took the license plate, PP4537. A man in a white shirt got into it, uh, who White realized later that night when he saw him on TV was Lee Harvey Oswald. Mm -hmm. But how had he seen him at 2 p.m. when he was apparently in custody at the time? This is interesting. White's wife said, say nothing, keep your fucking mouth shut. Yeah. Okay, don't say anything. <laughs> Years later, a journalist got that license plate number. When he checked it out, it belonged to Carl Amos Mather, 
who worked for Collins Radio, a contractor for the CIA. Mm. The FBI then talked to Carl Mather's wife, who said Carl was very close with the deceased Mr. Trippett. It was she and Carl who broke the news to Trippett's wife after he was shot. Fifteen years later, Carl said he'd testify to the House Select Committee, but only if he was granted immunity from prosecution. There were just too many coincidences, say the conspiracy theorists. Too many connections. But the best one is this. It gets even crazier. The official timeline is further complicated by the story of Robert G. Vinson, who worked in the U.S. Air Force for the North American Air Defense Command, NORAD. Mm -hmm. He saw the second Oswald, too. He was on the same getaway plane as Oswald. Okay, so let me let me clarify. Okay. Here we go. Vinson wanted to get to Colorado Springs, which was his home. So he went to Andrews Air Force Base and, as was customary in the Air Force, asked if he could hitch a ride on one of the planes. Right. Now, no planes were leaving, so he wrote his name and serial number on a sheet so that he was next on the list to go. He then went for breakfast, but halfway through it, he heard his name called over the loudspeaker. He was told a C-54 cargo plane was leaving for Denver. Great, he thought. The plane had no markings on it. Uh, And then when he got inside, it was completely empty. He saw two men in overalls working on the plane, but strangely, they also had no markings on their clothes. It was just plain. Vincent was also surprised that no one asked him to sign a manifest, which happened every time he hitched a ride. He had to sign this manifest, this book. When he was high in the sky, he heard a voice on the intercom say, quote, the president has been shot, end quote. The plane suddenly banked left and headed south. Soon, in the distance, he was very surprised to see the skyline of Dallas. Hmm. Two men in Dallas got on the plane, a taller man and a shorter man. He thought nothing of it until sometime later when he saw Oswald on TV and knew he was the shorter guy. Both these guys got off the plane when they landed again. Vincent later said, quote, I couldn't understand why they were in such a rush, end quote. Vincent later found out the plane had landed in New Mexico. He eventually got home and sometime later told his wife that Oswald had somehow been on his plane. Well, New Mexico is home to the V-Texas, <laughs> His wife told him he was nuts. That's fair. Uh, he kept quiet, quiet about it for 30 years. And in all those years, despite immaculate service, he never got a promotion. Now, remember, he'd put his name and serial number down at the Air Force Base. If this man really was Oswald, someone must have known Vincent had shared a plane with him. Right. So in 1964, Vincent was called in for what he was told was a special project. He soon discovered it was with the CIA. Hooray. They put him through a series of psychological tests and then asked him to work for them. He refused as he still had ambitions in the Air Force. But it seemed in the end, he had no choice. His bosses later told him that he was going to work with the CIA at Area 51 on the Blackbird SR-71 spy plane. Beautiful plane. Now, the conspiracy theorists believe that the CIA wanted Vincent close, working on top-secret projects, so he was unable to talk about his job. Vincent later said that he wasn't dumb. He knew this work meant he was going to be asked to keep his quiet about his plane ride. He later said he knew the CIA would never let him out of their sights. 
the CIA, he thought, would have killed him. Uh, could have killed him, but instead they hired him. <laughs> but in 1992, when Congress passed the JFK Records Act and Vinson was already retired, he contacted Dan Glickman, a Democratic representative for Wichita, Kansas. Vinson now knew, under the new act, he was able to talk. Vinson's story made the news, and later it became a book. Investigations showed that the C-54 could have landed about five minutes from where White had seen Oswald in the Red Falcon. So, this is how the second Oswald got away, according to this conspiracy theory. After JFK was killed, the first man to inspect the body was resident surgeon Charles Crenshaw, who was then working at the Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas. Okay? Mm -hmm. Jackie Kennedy was beside herself, he later said. Obviously, that was just... She just recently tried to put her husband's brains back into his head. Crenshaw and other doctors noted a, quote, small opening in the midline of JFK's throat, about the size of a tip of a finger. They'd all seen this many times in the ER. It was a bullet wound, Mm -hmm. an, an entry wound. There was absolutely no doubt about this, they said. They put a tube in Kennedy's throat as he wasn't breathing well, a process known as a tracheotomy. Crenshaw then looked at the empty cavity in the president's head, later saying that there was no doubt in my mind that the bullet had entered his head through the front. Mm-hmm. Still, on the day, the Secret Service took the body. That They just took it. This was not in line with U.S. protocol, but the Secret Service swooped in and took his body. Coroner Earl Rose tried to stop them, telling them the chain of evidence meant JFK could not leave the hospital. The agents pushed him aside. They really wanted that body. Hmm. As you know, the following autopsy at Bethesda Naval Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, revealed something very different from what those doctors had seen. The conspiracy theorists say that CIA's Alan Dulles made sure these doctors soon changed their minds. There's fucking Dulles again. And agreed it was possible that an entry wound could suddenly become an exit wound. And they agreed to that. There was one lone gunman, said Dulles, and you better well make sure you tell a story that fits that. End quote. Yikes. Dr. Malcolm Perry changed his statement, telling a friend that, quote, men in suits had visited him. The Secret Service agent Elmer Moore later admitted that he'd been told to pressure Perry. I love this because time, time, a lie will always come out in time. Yeah. The more time passes, people start talking. So Moore said, quote, I did everything as I was told. We all did just as we were told, end quote. Hmm. Crenshaw said in 1992, quote, we believe the medical truth would be asking for trouble. I was as afraid of the men in suits as I was the man who assassinated Kennedy, end quote, adding that anyone who would kill a president wouldn't think twice about killing a doctor. He wrote a book titled JFK Conspiracy of Silence. He was subsequently smeared. It was reported how much money he'd made from the book. The Journal of the Medical American Medical Association said in a paper that he may not have been in the trauma room that day. He may not have even been there, they said. Doctors and nurses at least came forward and said that he had. Right. And that what he'd said was the truth, but it, it didn't matter at this point. Once he was smeared, there was always a shadow of doubt hanging over him. 
say the conspiracy theorists, right? Mm. Even the doctors that did the official autopsy were under pressure. They were told not to examine the throat. Naval Medical Corpsman Paul O'Connor was there. He said they were told to leave the throat because the wound was just a tracheotomy wound, not a gunshot wound. So it got very tense, he said in an interview later, adding, we were all military. We could all be controlled, end quote. Lieutenant William Bruce Pitzer, who was head of the Navy's audiovisual department, got something worse than a good old smearing, according to this theory. He worked on a 16 millimeter film of the Bethesda autopsy. He saw everything. First class corpsman Dennis David saw Pitzer working on the film. They both knew what they saw that JFK had without a doubt been hit from the front. David later said in an interview, I can assure you it was definitely an entry wound. He said it was inconceivable that it could be anything else. David assumed that Peitzer had taken this film. He realized later that he what he'd seen would contradict the evidence that a lone gunman shot JFK. Mm-hmm. Peitzer had in his hands the most important footage in America. On October 29, 1966, Peitzer's body was found God on the damn, floor dude. of the National Naval Medical Center where he worked. Of course it was. Fuck me. The FBI said he was found in a pool of blood with a bullet wound to the head. A 38 caliber pistol was lying nearby. Well, he did have high cholesterol. <laughs> his family said immediately that what the FBI said happened could not have happened. Peitzer was neither depressed nor suicidal. We know from his wife and friends that he was thinking about retiring from the military and taking a new job. David said, quote, they were afraid that he would take the pictures that he had and that I had seen also these 35 millimeter slides and 16 millimeter film that he would have taken them with him, end quote. Peitzer was thinking about moving on to a major studio, so David said he'd be afraid Peitzer would have given them uh, this evidence to work with. Both the slides and the film have never been seen again. This allegedly incontrovertible evidence disappeared when Peitzer died. The Naval Intelligence went to see his wife Joyce after he died and told her not to talk to anyone. She kept quiet for 25 years. Even at 80, she said she was afraid that if she spoke, they'd stop her pension. She'd actually been told something incredible, something so dark that it was inconceivable. A retired Army Special Forces Lieutenant named Daniel Marvin had visited her. She said he told her in 1965 the CIA had approached him with an assignment. The job was to assassinate her husband. Well, fuck. She always knew someone had killed him, but Marvin said he hadn't been the man to do it. He'd refused to take out anyone on American soil, but he was still telling her someone in the CIA had killed her husband. Marvin had been a Green Beret and later trained as an assassin at a secret training camp in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. It was called the Special Warfare School. During that training, he and others were told that a perfect assassination of a government leader would consist of using snipers and setting up a crazed loon who could easily fit the description the public would believe. The lone gunman. In fact, in 1966, the CIA asked Marvin to assassinate Cambodian Crown Prince Narodom Sinahuk. 
I taxpayers think, dollars. Sihanouk. Taxpayers dollars. And to make it look like the work of the Viet Cong. The operation was later aborted, but Marvin said his entire military career consisted of such black operations. Hmm. He told Mrs. Peitzer that Colonel Clarence W. Pattern summoned him to the office one day and told him he was going to meet a quote-unquote company man. This company man asked him if he'd be willing to execute a man who was a national security risk. Marvin assumed this would be in Southeast Asia, where he'd worked before. So when he was told the target was William Peitzer and he was in the U.S., he refused to do it. He said he would only do it if Peitzer were abroad. Marvin later said in an interview, quote, it was common knowledge in mafia and CIA circles that Green Berets were tapped by the company to terminate selected targets in foreign countries, whereas the mafia provided the CIA's pool of assassins for hits in the U.S. Holy shit. End quote. Good fucking God. Marvin was also, okay, that, that was a weighty statement. Let's that, just take a yeah, moment. <clears throat> Give me goosebumps. Woo. Is this the world we live in today? Marvin, kind of okay, this is this is one man's statement. Yep, believe it or not, stuff. right? Marvin was also in contact with Captain David Vanek. He said in interviews later that Vanek, who he'd trained with regarding assassinations, might have killed Pizer. In 1993, Marvin went looking for Vanek, hoping he would admit what he'd done in the 60s. He said when he contacted the Veteran Services Directorate, he was told Vanek didn't even exist. Now, there was no record of him at all. That's when Marvin thought, huh, they took him out too. <laughs> but AARB found Vanek in 1996. By then, he was a colonel in the U.S. Army Medical uh, Reserve Medical Corps. Now, I find that really interesting. He was a colonel in the Army Reserve Medical Corps, yet, uh, oh, I don't know, two years prior, the Veteran Services De Directorate said he didn't exist. Yeah. I find that really interesting. That is a pretty strange way to go about your career. Weird. Okay, so Vanek admitted to training at the Special Warfare School, but said he didn't know Marvin. He also said he couldn't recall a meeting with the company man, and didn't know how Will, and he didn't know William Peitzer. But an investigation showed that Vanek had worked for a CIA cover organization in Thailand from 1965 to 1967. So, very interesting. It's the same time that uh, Marvin was there. Yeah. Weird. No way. Okay, so now, as for Jack Ruby. No oh boy. Now, we're going to cover a little bit of this. So, as for Jack Ruby, while in prison, a doctor diagnosed him as psychotic. He'd lost the plot, apparently, even though, according to documents discussed in Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s, Ruby was perfectly healthy and in fine mental shape uh, when he was visited just days before that diagnosis and each time uh, before that. So how had he suddenly started suffering from psychosis? That's kind of an interesting, I don't know how that happens. We'll just that boom. In the back of our He's mind. just psycho. Okay. The New York Times wrote on March 10th, 1964, quote, mind expert says Ruby was insane, end quote. Okay, that's a headline. Mm -hmm. Anything Couldn't he's, be more vague. Well, anything he said now 
would be the words of a madman, which the conspiracy theorist said came in handy for some people. Right. Right. So the man who diagnosed Ruby as psychotic was Louis Joylon West, a doctor who became notorious in time for dosing people with large amounts of lysergic acid diethylamide. LSD, bitches. Yep. In his top secret work in the MK Ultra interrogation, hypnosis and mind control program. Hmm. Okay. One of the most outspoken people about JFK conspiracies and apparently how ridiculous they were was the prosecutor and author Vincent Bugliosi. This same man threatened to sue Tom O'Neill when, during the 25 years O'Neill researched his book on Manson, he discovered Bugliosi's famous book, Helter Skelter, was full of provable lies and completely missed the CIA's many connections to the Manson murder. It's just another coincidence that Bugliosi became a kind of spokesperson for the CIA and the U.S. government in detailing how the conspiracy theories were not true. Hmm. Now, according to James Beard, who often played poker with Ruby back in the day, Ruby stored and shipped guns to rebels in Cuba for the CIA. A journalist, Dorothy Kilgallen, was working on a story about Ruby's CIA connections when she, well, she just mysteriously died. She just had an interview with Ruby when she was found dead in her Manhattan townhouse, apparently from alcohol and sleeping pills. Hmm. Next to her body was a glass, glass with dust on it, as if someone had crushed some pills. Now, in the CIA's assassination manual from 1952, in the techniques section, part three describes how a forced overdose is effective quote-unquote effective and quote-unquote not easy to detect weird they have a handbook okay so Kilgallen had worked for 18 months on the JFK story conducting numerous interviews she said the Warren Commission report was she said it was laughable she said she would shake up America with her story and then she died and according to the book the reporter who knew too much her death had CIA written all over it, okay? Jim Garrison always said Ruby was working for the CIA, not as an agent, but as a mafia asset. Hmm. As many mafia gangsters back then worked for the CIA in return for favors. Ruby knew if he killed Oswald, he would be next, say, the conspiracy theorists. That's the way it went, right? So at 3 a.m., the Sunday before he killed Oswald, he called police officer Billy Grammer. Grammer confirmed the speaker was Ruby. Ruby told Grammer, quote, if you move Oswald the way you're planning, we are going to kill him, end quote. <laughs> Directly just told him. <laughs> Grammer later said that Ruby was trying to screw up his own assassination job so he wouldn't end up having to kill Oswald and so he himself wouldn't be killed. That was the whole point of this you know, him trying to fuck the whole thing up. The Dallas County Sheriff's Office received calls at 2.15 a.m. and 2.30 a.m. from a man saying Oswald was about to be killed. Even so, Ruby defied reason when he's able to get into the police station and walk right up to Oswald. Yeah. Now, this shouldn't have been possible, especially after two those two phone calls. Really weird. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot. So... I, I don't, <laughs> I truly don't have a definitive opinion either way, okay? Um, Me either. 
Within the case, the investigation, within all cases where the investigation has been botched, which obviously this has been, it's weird because it was a presidential assassination investigation. Totally botched. Yeah. I can't believe they did it. But we can never really know the truth, and that's the problem. But Who this does it one, benefit for a botch? That's the thing that right, we want to ask. Who does it benefit when, it, when, when this it, is botched up? When shit gets botched up, look at who gets benefit, yeah. who gets the benefit of it. It could be a lone gunman that's just pissed off at right. Kennedy for maybe whatever the fuck was going on at the time. Or it could be this, this thing that is immoral on its base right. because it's the institution of government, and we've talked about that. And it's people that are trying to protect... They're fucking bad ideas, and they're right. dumb, childlike things. So. Well, with the Bost investigation, we can never really, truly know the truth. But this one specific case just has too many discrepancies for um, for me to be comfortable with it. Too many coincidences and witnesses all saying the same thing uh, to completely believe the official narrative. For me, personally, to completely 100% believe what we've been told. There's just too much extra stuff that none of us knew about. Yeah. My temperament doesn't allow for me to just be like, oh, I, I, I trust them. Right. Well, if this were, to, honestly, if this were an actual murder case gone to trial, there's no way Oswald would have been convicted. Zero. Right. Which is blows my mind. So... A lot there's, of this has blown my mind. There's a lot of shit that I've not heard that well, you presented today. There is ab there's so much more to this right. story. But what you've heard is the general outline of a conspiracy theory that has convinced many people to question the official narrative. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of supporting evidence here. Now, with the motive that we discussed last week and this... Um, well, it's just a little drop in the bucket of the mountain of evidence that I shared with you today. Uh, the question is, are you now one of those people? I mean, will you question the official narrative? Maybe rephrase it. Is this just some bullshit? Right. Don't look at that. Is that was that the position you want to take? At least more investigation mm -hmm. into it. I want more. The The problem is this is what? 40? Wait a minute. 50? Six, 60? Years ago. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> That's a long time. Yeah. So... I don't know. That's what I've got for you today. The, I hope I hope it was interesting. It was very interesting. Okay. I just remind people, the institution of government remains. Mm -hmm. The people that are elected into office mm -hmm. don't really matter to the system of government mm -mm. that exists, the bureaucracy that exists. So we should, as people, be like, well, what kind of country do we live in? Mm -hmm. Is this possible? Right. And then when the people that are, you know, perhaps guilty of this, or mm -hmm. at least the institutions that house the people that maybe plotted this mm -hmm. when they're the ones saying don't look at this you dumb fucking idiot conspiracy right. it's like well that couldn't be more obvious take it to the playground and be like i didn't fucking pull her hair well he's got hair in her right hands, exactly you know? but i i don't the thing that makes me uncomfortable is living i guess uh living in a in a era where we're not allowed to ask questions. Yeah, that's a bad slippery slope. It's a very... And this same thing happened in 1960s. Yeah, right here, we war. just talked about it. Yeah. Don't ask questions, just do what we say. Mm -hmm. And it's a very troubling uh, experience for the individuals who didn't ask questions and they did what they were told, but their stories, their official documents were changed to fit a narrative that they knew nothing about. There's That's some brave troublesome. people in this story. Some brave people that stood up to this mm -hmm. big monster that is serious folk. Well, things began changing. Uh, 
there's been a few dumps of information, but really things truly began changing in the early 90s when they were able to talk about things. And then uh, just 2003 to 2005, somewhere in there, there was another dump of information. Yeah. And then there's another dump just last year. Yeah. So there, with all of this stuff coming out, and of course, the same government, different people, but the same government that um, potentially could have played a part in this weird incident, the same government that we know for a fact played a part in... Um, uh, the Vietnam War and mm-hmm. the um, Bay of Pigs and the yeah and the North. Northwood and then there's another one with a boat. <laughs> oh, uh, the Lusitania, Gulf of Tonkin. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Vietnam War. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, anyways, what I'm saying is the same government uh, did those things. Maybe not the same absolute individuals that are rolling around today. Definitely, not. but it's the same government agency. It's the same body. You keep when you have an institution like a football team, mm-hmm. you know, you try and keep a tradition, you want to see the, the franchise survive. Mm-hmm. So, right. just something as simple as a football team. Mm-hmm. If you're part of this big government, or mm-hmm. even the most serious part of it, the CIA, the mm-hmm. most serious part of government, which is mm-hmm. they're super too, serial, they're the most serious people <laughs> on the planet. They are, they're willing to assassinate people that they think for, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. good or bad. You want your team, your. your institution to survive to grow to be good still Mm -hmm. you know you want your legacy as part of it to Mm -hmm. all the other people there it's just part of how humans are you're you're in a club and it just so happens to be a club that has these magical powers that can make it legal (laughs) for you to fucking assassinate people right and we're weird species Mm -hmm. for us to be okay with that yeah like that's the whole both of these episodes just like holy fuck the implications right of what's going on here Mm -hmm. because this is the good old america we're the the beacon of all this whatever Mm -hmm. that's what we all have been told our whole lives and that's what we all want to believe right and in a lot of cases it's true yes there's great people at the CIA. Uh, I'm sure of it. There's I'm certain of it. There's certain little but. Uh, aspects to our existence here in the U.S. that um, are sketchy. Yeah, you know, and that are questionable. Yeah, and we just don't look at those things, right? You know what I mean? Just when, whenever you can tell someone's wrong by the way they disagree, mm-hmm. and when they tell you don't look over here, I have to look. Mm-hmm. And when they say you're a fucking idiot if you listen to this guy, I'm gonna go listen to that I'm guy gonna and go, decide for myself. I do the same, and maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm not smart enough to know. That's definitely I. I have all sorts of limitations and blind spots, right? But I want it to be up to me. And they, it's like smoking. It's like a big fire. Yeah. We're like setting it like, well, nothing to see here. This big fire. Yeah, but there's a, flames. It's, a, it's Venus bouncing off the <laughs> gas swamp. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. It's all dumb. There's a fire right there. No, it's not a fire. A lot of propaganda is frustrating because it's stupid. Mm-hmm. A lot of this stuff is just so stupid. Magic right. bullets and fucking. If you like, I guess we're just doing the conclusion. But mm-hmm. if you go to Dallas, I'm told by people that have been down there, and mm-hmm. you go to the place where Lee Harvey Oswald is supposedly the took the shot right the, the amazing shot mm-hmm. a lot of people that are hunters and people that, that would know about fu- weapons are like no no way i've heard the same yeah, yeah. and then the, the magic bullet ended up in a fucking you know in its shell in its casing or whatever right. it's fucking like just pristine uh-huh. it bounced through it did, didn't just kill kennedy it hit another it yeah. hit a uh, governor right all that shit. What the just, fuck? It like how, turns midair. How much do you really want to buy? Like, 
whenever I see people believe those kind of things, I'm just like, that person needs to believe the government so much because right. without the government, we're all, f- it's just right. chaos, I think, right. to them. To them, yeah. And it's like, no, we're going to cooperate. Our mm-hmm. people don't need these highly corrupt people mm-hmm. taking our money and spending it on whatever the fuck they, like, journeys into the fucking other countries and assassinating people. Right. <laughs> in the name of the four companies that we're protecting. What? Right. I don't know. All this shit is insane. Right. And maybe we sound insane to you. My temperament is I don't trust things that are, that come out of a immoral institution. Mm-hmm. I don't see media as moral. I don't see government as moral. I see them working together. They've they've given us history that is garbage. Mm-hmm. This is obviously the thing. The the thing that I'm I I have a very difficult time with coincidences. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, fine. Two, fine. Three, okay, maybe three thousand. Four, exactly. The thing is. Uh, criminal cases have been people have been convicted of felonies and murders based on circumstantial evidence Mm -hmm. because of the mountain of circumstantial evidence when you have one piece of evidence uh, it's it is what it is but when you have a hundred pieces of evidence that all point in a specific direction our judicial system understands that the odds of that being true are pretty high. Mm-hmm. The direction that it's all facing, mm-hmm. you know, because it might be circumstantial, but it's a mountain of it. That's what we're dealing with here is a mountain of weird coincidences, circumstantial evidence, strange stories. Um, and, and that's where, at the very least, somebody lied. At the very least yeah. is what we're looking at here. For what reason? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Well, yeah. quite the journey there. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening and bearing with me during this two-part two part series, you, I guess. dug into it, girl. Two-part episode, two-part yeah. subject. Yeah. <laughs> it's been nuts. Yeah. And there's been lots of information that I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard before. And it is, you know, there's a lot more. Too. It's all so, out there. It is all out there. And a lot more that might take away from this theory, too. There's, there's things out there that mm-hmm. maybe it's like, no, Lee Harvey Oswald was like Voltron, man. That guy mm-hmm. could just precision fire Voltron. I don't know. Anywho, right. I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to remain skeptical of people that want to be in power mm-hmm. and that won't admit that they're wrong and that have no consequences for when they are wrong. Right. Those are the three big red flags as to why government and just in general across mm-hmm. the globe throughout all of history is an immoral institution at its best, at its best. Mm-hmm. It offers us some things that we... I guess don't know how to do for ourselves yet. It builds our roads, I guess. Like we don't know how to pave a thing without <laughs> taxing some guy and sending some kids to war. But we should be real skeptical in this world. Thanks for listening. Yeah. That was a lot of work, I know, to put that together. Mm-hmm. I really feel way more informed. I'm not sure. I, I'm happy about it. <laughs> but thank you guys for listening. Thank you to our trusted yeah. triad. We're not going to name any names today, just in case, you know, CIA is looking at this or something. <laughs> Uh, but you know who you are, trusted turd herders. Uh, yeah. You put together a pretty good, you know, well, I don't know if I'm, I'm swayed 100%, but my, my personality is like, fuck them, fuck them all. Well, They're all trying to manipulate hopefully everyone. Hopefully it, it piqued some interest to do some research yes. for, for our listeners. Care if what look, you think is true. Yeah, look into it. Mm-hmm. Make, of course, form your own opinion, but look at the evidence. Yeah. Look at the stories. Pull the paperwork. You I'm, know? Pretty sh- I'm pretty sure that the CIA gets a bad rap. What they mainly do is hug people. Do they? Yeah. Do they? They're the they're the number one supplier of candy to children, and they <laughs> I'm just hug. Just gonna say candy. They're, to they're kids. giving hugs everywhere they go. They have a special jet plane that you can't see in radar, mm-hmm. just to deliver hugs. Oh, 
They're fucking hugging motherfuckers. They're just virtual hugs? Yeah. Like invisible hugs? Yeah, they are. They <laughs> recruit people that hug the best. So if you're a great hugger, you should sign up for the CIA because they're looking for you. Yeah, nice. Okay. Uh, thank you to all of the, the memers that mm-hmm. help us and to all the people out there that are fucking in the Reddit, the subreddit. Mm-hmm. They're both oh. amazing. They're little mini- I don't want to mention their names. They're... <laughs> kidding thank you for all the hard work you do what's our email here dipshitfilespod at gmail.com that's where you can reach us just for this show dipshitfilespod at gmail.com that's right and our first card series from this episode from this show mm-hmm. dipshit files will come out next tuesday yeah. super pumped for you guys to get that it's nine cards of cryptids in a silver foil mm-hmm. and then also a mrs script keeper dark series card Ooh. and it's coming in a magnetic case with a, with a stand it's one of my favorite cards that oh. we have cards 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 that's coming out next week and it'll be our last card set for a couple a little bit mm-hmm. and we're going to do something special next month that's going to involve cards and you Mm-hmm. And I'm pumped for that. But we just wanted to have a bunch of fun this yeah. month doing cards and seeing how people were interested and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's been a blast. Holy shit. <laughs> We've had a lot of shipping going on. and It's I've, been fun. Yeah, it has. And I've had so many top loaders go through my hands. We are, we've got to be... The top loader company is like, right. hey, do you guys just want to sign up for yep. you know, a fuck it's load automatic a shipment? Yeah, it's been cool, guys. Mm-hmm. So we appreciate the shit out of that. I think that's all. Yeah. You, know, you can join us on Patreon for the bonus stuff. We're going to talk more about this crap. Yep. I watched a conspiracy video a long time ago when I was a kid. Not a kid, but a young man mm-hmm. that we're going to talk about there that, that seems to fall into this even really? more with all the new stuff that's coming out. Nice. It's weird. You know, I entertain lots of things. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what I think about all this, but we'll talk about it in the bonus stuff. Yeah. But as always. We'll, we'll talk about you in the future. It'll seem like a present. Like a present? Like a gift. You like know. a gift. That's so conceited. Good Lord. It'll seem like the time that you're living in. <laughs> currently <laughs> we're all trapped in the present you can't even go to the future if you wanna bye bye Bong. <laughs> <laughs> he had a face fart. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs>